0: Mojo. Ah, yes, here it is. Got your Mojo working? Pizzazz, oomph, zest, passion, energy, vibe, ACDC, the Mojo radio show? Hey, that can't be right. I
1: got my Mojo working, but it just won't work on you.
2: Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's show, season six on the Mojo Radio Show. If you're new to the show, what are we all about? Well, essentially, what we do is we just find people with an opinion people who have their mojo working and they're willing to share what they do in and out of work to help get it going. And if you haven't yet, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on and every Monday you'll get your Dose of Mojo radio show to get you through the week and set you up for what's ahead. And uh, interestingly, over the weekend, I had a note from a listener saying that we're now on Spotify. So if that's your favourite platform
1: for listening to tunes, you can also pick up podcasts, and you'll find us there. So, I wonder which show producer organised that. Oh, did you do that? <laughs> I thought Lola had done it. Ah, oh, no, Lola wasn't around. That was the end of last year. That someone organised that. Don't know who.
2: Let's do a roll call. Let's uh, go around the studio. Let's sound off. Uh, AP.
1: Who let the dogs out? Oh, I
0: tell you what. Someone let something out.
2: Uh, Robbo behind the panel, mate, keeping us, uh, keeping us, st- keeping us on the straight and narrow on the big red bus.
1: Absolutely. I tell you what's keeping me on the straight and narrow. Get this. Can you believe Sam turned two last week? Wow. I know. How crazy is that? Right. Two.
2: That's how. That's how old our little show is. We were and, only. And in the, main, s-
1: the meantime, you popped another one. How's little Tobes? Has he hit twenty four kilos yet? He's not quite twenty four kilos yet, but he's getting up there. He's doing well. <laughs> Front row, champion. absolutely, yeah.
2: And uh, let's say good day to our newest member of the show. Good morning, Lola.
3: Hello, boys.
2: Lola, play your theme song.
3: Sounds good to me.
1: Uh, tell you what, it sounds good to me too. I love that song.
2: So, if you love that song, you'll love this song. Lola, play Pop Quiz Hotshot. <laughs>
1: The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. Oh, it's a bit early in the show for a pop quiz. I haven't woken up yet. <laughs> I know, but this, this is just a quickie, right? It's just, yep. just, a, just a quickie because I think it, it leads into our
2: topic for today. Okay. So yep. I'm going to play you a sound effect. Tell me what song this sound effect was in the intro for and who were the artists. You ready?
1: Yep. That's a zippo lighter. But I do It don't. is a Zippo lighter. What song? And what they?
2: song? It was back a when we were zippo in radio. Lighter. There was Zippo lighter and somebody was recording in the studio and the, somebody, one of the producers, had a Zippo lighter was oh. lighting up a Gaspar. Oh,
1: who was that? And somebody
2: went, actually just do that again. Yeah. And they made a the matter grab of it, and it became the intro to the song, and it was like the it was like the drum beat, except there was a yeah. Who, I can't remember who that was. I do remember that now. Became a hit song. This would have been back in the oh gee the nineties or yeah. something. Where yeah, we were yeah, at, at late the late eighties, early
1: nineties. Yeah. And the
2: song is this, Lola. I'm listening. Can you play? It's probably me. Sting featuring Eric Clapton. <laughs> I hate to see it. It's top is it? I hate to see it. That is.
1: That's great. It's
4: probably.
1: Tops of a lighter.
2: <laughs> Tops of a lighter. God the Zippo. What a great brand back in the day. I know. So here's the setup. That I just love the fact that somebody's in the studio heard that sound and was open enough to it to sample the sound and then go, how do we use that in a track? And for me, that just that little piece is all about building connections, matching unrelated thoughts, giving your brain the simulation to create, collaborating, because it's Sting and Eric Clapton, and collaborating not only in the song itself, but in the execution of the idea, and also having the awareness to listen and actually hear or to see and actually notice what's going on. And that's kind of where we're going, and plus it's a cool song. Like it just is a cool song. And great songwriters are always, as Ivor Davies said on our show in Rocktober a couple of years ago, he said, great songwriters always have their antenna on. And that's a classy, classy example. Our guest today is a guy called Alan Gannett and he he basically attacks the, the methodology or the myths surrounding creative genius and through his research and the interviews he's done with loads of great creatives around the world, he's going to talk about the science and secrets behind how do you find cool breakout commercial success in any, any industry you work in with creativity. And we, we have this typical notion that creativity is only for the smarter people, you know, the genius, the geniuses, And it's only those brilliant few that have the great ideas. But what, what Alan's now starting to show is through his book, which is called The Creative Curve and the research he's done and the interviews he's now doing, that it's actually accessible to all of us. It's not just a gift for some, but if we understand how it works and we apply it exactly the same way as Sting and Eric Clapton did, but we apply it in a production studio on a podcast, writing a book, solving a problem for the school, something we do in our church assembly or something we do on the manufacturing floor of a company. Creativity isn't just magic. There's some of that, but it's also a muscle, and the more we use it, the more it gets betterer, which is the Queensland term for better. So having said all that, this was a show very dear to my heart because creativity, innovation is part of my core, part of my DNA. I'm delighted to have him here.
4: Alan, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me. This is, by the way, my first... My first Australian radio show podcast, anything. So I feel like this is like the <laughs> Beatles discover America.
1: Yeah, first time down under. We've well, all the te- <laughs> all the teenage girls were out the front here, but we've just had a thunderstorm, so they disappeared. Unfortunately, you missed out.
2: <laughs> well, let's uh, let's hope we don't do such a bad job. It's your last interview <laughs> with an Australian <laughs> podcast, <laughs> so, Alan. When um when you're out and about, and somebody walks up and meets you for the first time and says. What do you do? How do you like to reply? My
4: um, yeah, you know, what I say is basically I'm an entrepreneur and author. And I started a company called Trackmaven, which helps big brands figure out what their marketing data actually means. So we've helped brands like the MBA, Marriott, GE, you know, small companies figure out what they actually what they actually are learning from the data that's been kicked off by all their marketing. And I started that company six years ago and we just merged it. 4 weeks ago with a larger company and so I'm no longer CEO after 6 years I'm now chief strategy officer of a company called Skyward and so Skyward's mission is to be the number one content marketing platform and so there's a really obvious fit there where you know we give people recommendations and in Skyward we actually take action on it and so that's sort of that's my like main life and then I also have this sort of other life as a writer where I wrote a book called The Creative Curve, which is all about this question of whether or not you can learn to become more creative. And I interviewed 25 living creative greats; these are billionaires, Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, you know, people across food, music, art, all these different types of things, to really try and get to this question of can you get better at it? And uh, and yeah,
2: we must have missed that call, Robbo, because I don't. Now that we were interviewed for that.
4: Uh, I I, I, I didn't know how to tell you, mate,
1: so I kept my mouth shut. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Anyway, we'll proceed. Um, Alan, let's, let's start with the creativity thing. In those interviews and the observations you've made, what you've seen and heard, and you had to write about it, what do you think is the greatest misunderstanding we have about the creative process
4: oh there's so many but I think the the main one is that in Western culture we have this notion of creativity being a sort of inspiration activity where there's these people they're sort of demigods who you know are just blessed with talent and they get these moments that strike them and it's inspiration and it's Physical and it's all consuming, but it's also kind of easy for them. And that's what leads to these genius ideas. And that is sort of the the common Western notion. I call it the inspiration theory of creativity, but it's really the inspiration myth of creativity. Because the reality is that it's so far from the truth. When you interview and you talk to the best creatives, what you find over and over again is that's the result of hard, thoughtful work. Not just hard work, because lots of people work hard, but hard, thoughtful work. And in the book, what I also did is I talked to all of the leading researchers who study creativity across neuroscience, psychology, sociology, anthropology. And what's so interesting is we actually have been studying creativity for decades. Like we know a ton about how creativity works and what drives it, both in our society and even internally within our mind. But yet we have this sort of like, movie Hollywood version of creativity is just stuck there. And I think that's kind
2: of what I want to deep dive into with you, Alan, because this is, a, this is a, a topic that I am very curious about. And in the book, you talk about the fact that a, a flash of genius, that aha moment is not just a stroke of inspiration, but there's actually biology, which is what you just spoke about of the mind. There's actually biology behind it. And I guess... To start us off, is, is there a way we can feed that biology? Is there a way that we can put ourselves in a situation where that, as you call it, the flash of genius or the aha moment is more likely to happen?
4: Yeah, so when we talk about aha moments or light bulb moments, whatever term you want to use, these are all sort of pop culture terms for the scientific phenomenon of what's called sudden insight. This idea that you suddenly get an insight with seemingly no real origin. And you all experience these, right? Think about when you're working on like a crossword puzzle or some sort of puzzle or any just problem that you're working on. And then all of a sudden you wake up or you're walking down the street and the idea that answer just hits you, that's actually the same phenomenon biologically. And so what scientists do to study inspiration is they literally put people in MRI machines, they show them different puzzles, and they ask them, okay, how did you solve that? Was it sudden insight or was it logical processing? And then, for the sudden insight answers, they see what was happening in the brain. And what turns out is that sudden insight is really the behavior of our right hemisphere. Our right hemisphere's job is to sort of connect distant ideas together. It's where we store sort of like definition two and three in the dictionary. It's where we process metaphors. Things that aren't direct all goes on our right hemisphere. Now, what's interesting, though, is that the type of processing that goes on our right hemisphere is all subconscious. For example, when you hear a stand-up comedian You just get the joke. You don't think step-by-step, why is it funny, unless the stand-up comedian isn't funny, and then you're just confused. But typically, you just get these things, this idea of just connecting these disparate ideas together. And so what creativity is, what aha moments are, is that your right hemisphere is connecting two different ideas together and is coming up with something new. And that leads to what scientists say. There's two things you need to do to have aha moments. There's two prerequisites. One is kind of obvious, is that you need to have silence. See, your right hemisphere, the work that it's doing is sort of right at the level of consciousness. So if you have lots of stuff going on, if you're talking to lots of people, if you're constantly doing stuff, you're not going to be able to sort of hear, you know, hear in quotes, what's going on in your right hemisphere. This is why people talk about aha moments in the shower, on their commute, in their car ride. It's not that the shower is inspiring, although I've been working out a little bit it's that those are moments when your right hemisphere can actually be heard okay so that's number one the second thing is that okay if your brain's goal if your right hemisphere's goal is to connect new ideas together is to connect the dots well you have to have dots to connect you have to have dots to connect and what i mean by that is when you look at these stories of great creatives look at paul mccartney for example Paul McCartney had been consuming music since he was a kid. He grew up in a musical household. He literally played in a cover band for years. He was constantly consuming. And since he had all these musical ideas in his head, and his right hemisphere was doing work, it was coming up with new musical ideas. And you see this trend over and over again, where it turns out that consumption is actually one of the main critical paths for creativity. If you don't have the raw material, your brain can't come up with new things. So what you find is that the great creatives you talk to are actually very active consumers and they go very, very deep in their niche. They want to read, listen, experience everything in their vertical because that's what gives them the raw material to come up with new ideas. So it's consumption that is so undervalued but so important when it comes to creativity. When you talk about consumption and you just said that
2: Leading creatives seem to learn a lot about a little. But it's also not just about that. I've heard you say that it's it's also how they consume. And it's funny because when I heard that, it's something that Robbo and I have talked about on the show here before, that Hunter S. Thompson, the great writer, he rewrote The Great Gatsby a number of times just to know what it felt like to write a masterpiece. And it made me... Sort of connect that back to what you have said and written about is it's not just the consumption, but it's also how they do it. What have you learned about
4: that? When you think of creativity, I actually think that there's three key elements. One is timing, which is how do you get the right idea at the right time? And we can talk more about that. The second is craft. And the third is marketing and distribution. And what you're talking about is craft. And what you find Is that these great creatives, one of the critical ways that I found over and over again they learned is just like Hunter S. Thompson. I did not profile him, but these creatives I interviewed, they were big into imitation. They constantly said, okay, there's people who've already figured out the right way to tell a dramatic story, a way that evokes a strong response. And so you find that a lot of these great creatives, what they do is they imitate the greats to learn what is that baseline that sort of familiar baseline that I can then iterate off of, that I can then add my own novel twist. Because one of the things that scientists find when you look at creativity, it's so fascinating, is that the ideas that we're attracted to as consumers, as an audience, are actually not the ideas that are radically new. They're not the ideas that are radically new, because those ideas are scary, Right? No one wants to watch a movie that's nine hours long and has no Like That sounds terrible. What we want to watch is a new type of Western, a new type of drama, a new type of coming-of-age story. And so as a result, these great creatives, they've realized this. And what they do is they actually focus on learning those patterns, learning those structures, dare I say formulas, of the great. So Kurt Vonnegut, for example, for his master's thesis, what he did is he actually went out and mapped out, he created a graph of the different types of story arcs found in the great novels. In the great novels, what are the story arcs? And he found there was four recurring story arcs that appeared over and over again. And that was one of his fundamental lessons as a writer was learning these patterns. Because once you learn the pattern, then you create something that's just the right amount of new.
2: Is part of it getting out of our own way, Alan? I I heard you tell a story, which I'd like you to share for us now about the laboratory. If we go back to the left and right brain, and what we discovered earlier in the show, and leading on to what you just spoke about, you said that there's an analogy of the operation of the brain, the left and right brain is a bit like a laboratory. Can you just run that for us?
4: Yeah, so I have this this metaphor analogy that I like that I like to use is that you can sort of think about the two hemispheres of your brain as your loud lab partner in university and your quiet lab partner. Your left hemisphere is the loud lab partner where you know every step of the problem, he's talking out loud, he's very vocal, he's smart, but he's a little obnoxious. And he's very, very direct. Let's do this, and then this, and then this. And look, we got the answer. And then your right hemisphere is your like quieter, dorky lab partner, sort of sitting there working on the problem. And when they get the answer, they say, hey, I got the answer. And if, you're, if the left hemisphere, if the loud lab partner is too loud, well, you can't actually hear what's going on in your right hemisphere. So that's why that silence is so important. That's why quiet is so important. Because you need to be able to hear the things that have been going on with your quiet lab partner, with your right hemisphere. And so silence is so, so important. I mean, Bill Gates spends a week, a year, he goes and gets a cabin by himself to isolate. So many of the great creative icons we think about, whether it's even Steve Jobs is known for going on these long walks. Mark Zuckerberg adopted this sort of walking thing. They have some sort of meditative-like habit. It's not necessarily meditation. Often it can be something like going to the gym or going on a run or going on a walk. But something meditative that gives them the time to actually think. So if we, if we stay on that metaphor or analogy of the lab...
2: Is is the people, the other people in the lab important to us? I mean, the people we surround ourselves, we've got the left and right, we've got the two brain partners in the lab.
4: Yeah, so it's it's fascinating because one of the reasons why creativity is so misunderstood is that we have sort of the marketing and PR of creativity that has been sold to us. And the version of creativity that we've been sold by companies, by media, by all this different stuff, is the idea of sort of the iconic genius, right? We think about Steve Jobs. We think about Elon Musk. We think about J.K. Rowling. It's these solo individuals who seem to roll these giant boulders up a hill. And the problem is that this gives people this crazy notion that if they can't do everything, they're not creative enough. And that is so far from the truth. I mean, look at Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak on day one. They actually raised money very early and had multiple employees. You know, Elon Musk was rich when he started Tesla and SpaceX and was able to hire you know, engineers from the get-go. It's not actually just about the individual. I mean, J.K. Rowling's book would not have been successful without her agent, her publisher, her marketing team. And so creativity is actually a social phenomenon. When you think about creativity, you can't think about it as just the person whose name is on the cover. I mean, you know, I found this experience when I wrote the book, which is that you know my name, just my name is on the cover. But you know, I had an editor, a research assistant, a copy editor, proofreaders, agent, marketing team, publicist, cover designer, all of those people had to come together to get this product actually to market. But yet I'm the one who gets credit. And that's a social construct. That's who do we decide to give credit to. And that's actually changed over time. You see this right now in music where you know back in the 60s and 70s, People acknowledged who the actual songwriters for music was. In the 90s, we went through this phase where we just pretended the pop star wrote all the music themselves, even though they didn't. And now we're back to this phase where there's these famous songwriters like Max Martin and Benny Blanco who are getting their own names out there and getting more credit. And so we have to be sure that when it comes to creativity, that we don't confuse our image of the creative genius with the actual art and process of creativity, which is inherently social. So
2: when we're building that team, something you've talked about is ensuring that part of your team are people from the fringe. So it seems today that group think or the majority are all going to go in the one direction, but you've spoken about making sure you've got somebody who's prepared to go in the other direction, somebody from the fringe. In your experience, Ellen, how fringe is fringe?
4: <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I I touched on before is that, you know, when scientists look at what attracts us to things, what attracts us to certain ideas, whether it's a product, a song, or a movie, it's this, it's this blend of the familiar and the novel. It's, you know, ideas that are familiar enough to feel safe and approachable, but yet novel enough to pique our interest, right? We like twists on old nostalgic things. This is why we like remixes and we sample music, all this different stuff. And so one of the sort of things that flows from this is that when you look at the most successful teams, the most successful teams are actually not the teams that are full of establishment figures, that are full of just people who've already been super successful. The most successful teams are a combination of the establishment and the fringe. They're a big-time movie producer, you know, mentoring and taking on a young director or a young writer because what that gives you is it gives you the familiarity, the best practices, the distribution of the establishment with the novelty, those twists of the fringe. And so when you talk about, you know, how much fringe is too fringe, I think it depends if that fringe is being balanced. You know, one of the big mistakes a lot of artists have is that they think, Well, I just have to create something radically novel, and that doesn't work, right? So what you have to do as an artist is either find a collaborator, find a partner who has more of that balancing force, who can bring you to the familiar, or balance yourself out, right? They also found that it's not just teams that are mixed, that are establishment and the fringe, but there's some people who are able to balance that who are able to stay a part of the establishment, but also still have ideas on the fringe, those people are also very, very successful because they're able to play with those tensions. And I saw this with, I interviewed David Rubenstein, who's a billionaire. He has the David Rubenstein show in Bloomberg. He started the Carlyle Group. And one of the things I noticed about him, he's 69 years old, incredibly rich. He is so curious Right? Even when we were talking, he kept trying to interview me and ask me questions about Big Data. And I was like, please stop, I'm trying to interview you. And you find that these people, even though they're so successful, They're still curious. They're still paranoid. They still want to learn from the fringe. They want to be that balance. And that is so important. The other really annoying
1: fringe, Gary, is that 80s one that sort of hangs down in your eyes and you can't see where you're going and you bump into things.
2: Flock of seagulls, (laughs) 80s.
1: Spand out ballet. I could go on.
2: (laughs) So Alan, are you saying that it's okay to have a
4: conflicting collaborator, like a non-conformist in your fringe party, a hundred percent. One of this is one of the things I think is so interesting is that you know when you look at the most successful teams, you know we oftentimes say when we're looking for a co-founder, you know we're looking for someone who we gel with, who we have that sort of flow with. But actually, the most successful teams typically consist of people who are very different, because again, creativity is not a solo activity. So I profile. Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo behind The Greatest Showman, La La Land, um, you know, the Broadway smash Dear Evan Hansen, you know, they've won Oscars, Emmys, Tonys, all this stuff. And what's fascinating is the two of them are so different. You know, One of them, Benj Pasek, is incredibly exuberant. He's so excited. He has all these ideas. He's constantly going. And then Justin Paul is very thoughtful. He thinks a little bit more methodically. He goes a little slower. But that combination is what makes them successful. Because as individuals, Justin Paul would get stuck in routine and process. Benj Pasik wouldn't actually get his ideas to fruition. But together, that's where the magic happens. And you find this over and over again. And so I think this is one of those things where as people, we have to stop telling ourselves that, oh, you know, I can't do everything, so I'm not creative. No, what you have to be is self-aware. You have to learn what are your gaps and then you have to go fill those gaps. That's what it takes to become creative.
2: Putting a few of these threads together, I'm just going to set this up for a couple of seconds that I'm going to get you to answer a question on this. One of my favorite interviewers is a guy called James Lipton from Inside the Active Studio. And Inside the Actor Studio is set in New York. It's in a theater and it's full of first, second, third year students of acting, producers and directors of the future. And they interview, James interviews the greatest living actors, producers and directors. One of the greatest themes, and it rates over 90% of people in that field who are at the top of their game, out of all the hundreds he's done, is they come from a broken home. And what he found was that when he spoke to the actors about this situation, they said, well, I got to spend so much time on my own. It piqued my imagination. The question for you, Alan, is you came from a family or parents that were divorced. Did you personally find that back at that time, that happened to you where you spent a lot of time in your own world and it fostered your own imagination? Because you're a very curious guy.
4: Um, well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind. Um, I, I have a whole bunch of thoughts on this. So one, you know, I definitely, I grew up, um, divorced parents, very young, only child, lots of time by myself. My parents both work full-time plus jobs. And- it definitely made me resourceful. You know, sometimes for better and for worse. I'm sometimes overly self-reliant. It's not the best thing in personal relationships. It's often very useful in professional world. But what I found that I thought was interesting more broadly is when I was doing these interviews, I definitely found that. I definitely found that most of the people I interviewed come from some form of a broken home. But not a hundred percent. I found it was like 80-20. And the 20% I actually think are really interesting. They're really telling. This 20% that came from these highly functional homes. And with those 20%, the thing I found was what their parents did is they were very, very, very generous with feedback. And the reason why is that when you tell a kindergartner after they've painted something that it sucks, that it's not that great, or maybe this is not your talent, they internalize that. And they stop. When you tell the same kindergartner, even with the same horrible drawing, that, wow, this is amazing, this is incredible, you're incredible, what they do is they then say, well, I should do this more because I like this affirmation. I like love. We're all seeking that. So they do it more, and then they get more affirmation. And then they do it more and more, and then they actually start to get good and then other people start to affirm them. And then by the time they're 10, they've been drawing for five years. They have compounding advantage. And they've learned that when they do this thing, people give them affirmation. And so that's actually something I think is really important for parents out there, which is that you know, if you want your kid to become a creative superstar, you, know, you don't have to break your home. What you have to do, though, is you really do have to be generous with feedback early on. You do have to give them that initial push, because so much of success is based on compounding advantage from people starting very, very early, because they either had parents who were incredibly hard on them, or they had parents who were incredibly generous to them with feedback. So I think that's a really important thing to know.
2: Where did you personally get your affirmations from, Alan? Because when you at a, at a young age, you get a family that um, divorces breaks up. Do you remember a person that
4: really resonated with you that gave you that affirmation? Yeah. So for me, for me, it's interesting. I think for me, a lot of where some of my own, you know, starting a company young, doing all this stuff came from this sense of, um, you know, in my family, there wasn't always a ton of emotions expressed and it took a lot to get emotions expressed. And so I was definitely seeking affirmation from my family, but it took what to me felt like you know very, very large leaps to get that, to get that at least easily. And so I think that led to this cycle where I decided I had to do these bigger and bigger and bigger things to get affirmed. And I found that when I did that, I'd also get affirmed by other people, whether that be teachers or friends or otherwise. So I think I very early on sort of decided that I needed to do these sort of out of, you know, sort of out of the box things, you know, I started um, my first sort of you know, um, website when I was in fifth grade. I started my first business when I was um, 15 or 16, right? And so I always sort of had internalized that feedback loop. And I think it's only recently that I've sort of realized that that doesn't actually make you happy um, because <laughs> you end up just having to do bigger and bigger things to keep getting affirmations. It doesn't work. Um, and so I, I've I've worked more recently on you know, a changing my relationship with my parents and working on that. And then two, of um, you know, now as you know, I'm in my late twenties, um, I've been living in one city for almost 10 years, building a sort of a friend group of people around me who are loving and affirming and all these things, even without me doing sort of theatrics or professional heroics. And I think that's taken a lot of time to learn. Um And there's been benefits to it professionally, but I think personally it also causes um, lots of pain.
2: I I don't want to camp here for too long. but something you said, which I think is really, really important. And i just like your view on it, is when you grow up and you come from an environment that's not terribly emotional, then you flipped it around to say, it's only of recent times that I've appreciated the fact that maybe that's an important ingredient and it's not the doing part, it's more the feeling part. What... And you're starting to build these these friendships around you and start to open up to them. You said it's hard. How do you do that? Like for someone listening, Alan, what would be the the suggestion or the thought or the question they could ask themselves to, how do you start to unlock some of those
4: emotions? Well, a bunch of things. I mean, one is, um, you know, I have like the most lovely therapist of all time, right? And so I spend lots of time with him. And you know, just working through stuff, and I find that that is a really useful support system. I think two is building self awareness about when am I uncomfortable and what's causing me discomfort, because kind of like working out, some discomfort is good, right? If you worked out and was never uncomfortable, it wouldn't be good. And so, what I find emotionally, it's the same thing. Where there's certain situations where and this is really a few years ago, it's sort of changed now, but. You know, people would be very affirming or loving or all these things, and I'd feel sort of uncomfortable. I'd feel like, oh, please don't give me a compliment, right? Please don't do that. Um, I would even say that. And the result was it became my own self fulfilling prophecy because I'd push people away who were like that, and then it didn't ever get it, and it never sort of resolved that gap. And so I think becoming self aware of when that was happening and telling myself basically to shut up and lean into it. And even though I'm uncomfortable, like do it. And over time, once you sort of get that ball rolling, you sort of learn that, oh, I'm feeling kind of down, you know, my sort of inclination is to just sit here and resolve this in my head myself. But what I really should do is go see, you know, I have a few friends who are like in those situations, just very helpful and just being around them is very comforting and they're very affirming and um, a lot of sort of love and all that sort of stuff. And pushing myself and knowing that if I do that, I will feel better. And I can then sort of cognitively push through the emotions and get it done. Um, but it takes an initial cycle. And so, um, you know, I definitely think, you know, seeking outside help, whether that's um, peers, friends, a therapist, um, you know, any any sort of anything like that. I think all of it is incredibly helpful. That's gold. gold.
2: I think it's gold, Alan. I, I really appreciate sharing that, mate, because I reckon there's a lot of people in that same boat, and I think what you just said is, is not only gold, but it's really profound. I, and I wonder whether this fits into it, Alan. I've heard you say, I mean, your job at Track Maven now at Skyward is pretty analytical because you said we take data and we help people make sense of it, and that's that's very analytical. Yet here's a guy who wrote a book which is super successful on creativity, and we've had a theme and not for any particular reason, it's just been a theme that's arisen over the last, I don't know, six to nine months about our identity. And you mentioned being super self-aware earlier in the show. And I'm just wondering whether you had to adjust your own Alan identity to be able to not only research the book but write the book and then put it into the marketplace when your identity was purely as an analytical guy then you're going. What right have I got to be writing on creativity? Did that did that process consciously go through your mind? Did you have to look at your own identity and make adjustments?
4: One, I would definitely not say I'm I'm very self-aware. I think I'm attempting self-awareness. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate it, um, and um, a little self-awareness about my self-awareness. Um, <laughs> but then to answer your question. There's the promo um, for the show. Okay. I've got self-awareness yeah, exactly. about my self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, that's, that's the quote card. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, I, I definitely didn't have a struggle with the idea of me diving to creativity because, you know, we've worked with marketers now for six years. So I've always been someone who's been in an assisting role to creativity. So the idea of sort of understanding as a system, was not scary. The actual, the identity change for me that was really interesting was, just putting myself out there, because when you do a book, it's kind of like a political campaign. Like, you are the salesperson for the message of the book. And that was very weird. You know, just talking about the stuff we were saying before and some of my insecurities and blah, 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 you know, being able to become comfortable with telling my own story, with, you know, being able to be you know, boastful enough to market a book, which isn't something you can do if you're just a wall flyer, doesn't ever want to talk about themselves. Um and so I think that to me was actually the biggest identity change, but also a really healthy thing was learning how to be comfortable with who I am, what I've done, and be able to advocate for my causes, my missions, my messages. I think that was a really healthy change that the book really helped catalyze.
2: If I, if I tie back something you said earlier today, I, mean, I think a lot of people are going, that's not me. I'm not one of the creative guys. I'm an analytical guy. I'm a finance guy. I work in accounts. I'm a procurement guy. That's not me. Is there a belief or a hallucination that IQ has anything to do with creativity?
4: This is one of the things that's so fascinating because, you know, there's literally this show, I think, on the History Channel in the States called Genius. And it features people like Picasso and Steve Jobs and all this stuff. But, you know, genius is traditionally we think about this as like an iq thing and so there's been this combination of the idea of iq genius and creative genius even though iq is this like very narrow band of intelligence that is actually by the way quite malleable there's all these studies about how people's iq actually changes based on their environment based on their education and we can go way more into sort of neuroplasticity and why that is but anyway iq is measuring a very narrow set of of um, talents. It's how well do you process very certain types of questions. It is actually completely different than creativity. There's been these studies, for example, that have found that anyone with an IQ of over 104 has the same creative potential. An IQ of 104, that's like half the population of the world. That's like billions and billions and billions of people. There was a famous study that was done that's been the longest longitudinal study ever. and starting in the early 1900s and they tested thousands of kids in California, and they took 2,000 kids with genius-level IQs, and then what they did is they actually followed them throughout their lives to see what would happen. You know, these kids, these amazing IQs, they'd go on to do great things, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out that none of the kids, zero, achieved any type of, like, mainstream, you know, household recognition. Of the 2,000 kids, none of them. But... Oh, none of them, by the way, won Nobel Prizes, nothing like that. In fact, the only two kids who won Nobel Prizes were two kids who they tested and did not make the cut. And so, so often we confuse the IQ test, which is an academic tool used to measure some very specific things, with the idea of creativity. And they're completely separate. And so, you really have to, I think, look at yourself and look at the stories you tell yourself about your own creativity, and analyzing, what is stopping me? Because oftentimes, you're your biggest enemy. You're the one who's telling yourself that you can't do it. You're the one who remembers that conversation you had in high school, where that teacher told you, don't get an English degree, you'll become a coffee shop worker. You're the one who internalized those and still has those sitting with you. And it's time to break those stories down. And it's time to realize that all those are Stories with our IQs, Gary. There's hope for us yet, mate. <laughs> exactly,
2: <laughs> out of the 80s, 109 or 106 for me would be gold. If I get out of the 80s, exactly. I'd be happy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Stuck in the 80s.
2: <laughs> we, um, speaking of the 80s, we interviewed one of Australia's great rock icon songwriters, a guy called Ivor Davies, who's written movie scores like Master and Commander. He's written the opening of the Olympics, and he has written some of the greatest, straight, iconic rock anthems. Something I remember Ivor saying during, Shane, to us during the show was he said, I never write unless I have a commission. So he's not one of these guys that's always writing songs. He's not one of these guys that has a guitar in every room and he's always just looking for the next thing. Until someone says, I want you to do this, and he has a commission, he never sits down to apply his mind to writing. And DJ Shadow said the same thing. Unless he has, the album's got to drop on the first day of spring, now I've got a commission. Now I go to work. Did you find that this was a thread with the great creatives? Because I think people, to your point, they have these misnomers about creativity, but I just suspect that people think they've got to be on all the time. They've got to have ideas
4: all the time. <laughs> Yet I'm hearing these people say, well, I, unless I have a commission, I don't. This is one thing that I think is so funny is that there's all this like terrible creativity. I call it creativity porn, by the way. These articles about creativity that are like based <laughs> in pseudoscience. And okay, on pseudoscience. Okay, you're the right creat- <laughs> <laughs> There's all this creativity porn out there that's like, you know, you have to write a thousand words a day and you have to constantly be doing. And like, oh my God, that's not at all how our brains work. right? Our right hemisphere literally needs time to process and it needs raw ingredients. So actually what you find is that the thing that's consistent is consumption. What you see is that every single day, the best consumers, the best creatives are consuming. And so I call this the 20% principle. It's this idea that I found that these great creatives typically spend about 20% of their time consuming content in their niche. And they do that daily. Now, what they don't do is they don't create daily. You see these great screenwriters, they'll write a movie, they'll take a year off but they're constantly giving themselves those raw materials for that next idea. And so this is one of those big mistakes that we have is that we've intertwined creativity with productivity and that actually kills creativity because it doesn't give you the time you need to germinate on your ideas. There have been a number of books written on the great creatives
2: in history and specifically around Rituals and/or routines. Did you find that that was a big part of the people you interviewed in their day? They had either morning, evening, daily rituals or
4: routines of some sort. So what I found is that they definitely had routines, but the more important thing was self awareness—was knowing what is the best routine for them because it's different for different people. So there's a great book that Daniel Pink wrote called When that came out early this year that's all about timing yourself by day, by week, by month, by year. And the idea, one of the core points of the book, and you should definitely read it, is that we're all different. You know, Most of us fit within a pretty set schedule, which he talks about in the book. There's about 70% of us with the same schedule, but then about 30% of us which are on these two other schedules. And you have to learn what that is for you and then you have to implement that for yourself. So people's routine can be different. It just has to be what's right for them. I saw Daniel Pink talk
1: earlier this year here in Melbourne. He's fascinating.
4: Yeah, I mean, he's he's amazing. He lives in DC,
1: so. Yeah, fascinating guy.
4: Is it fair to say that
1: creatives
2: just see the world through a different lens, Alan? Is that, when it comes down to it, do they just see their day, the world through a different
4: viewpoint? No, I don't think so. I think what it is is that you know they give themselves a different set of experiences, a different set of raw material, they learn different skills. And then since they have that different raw material and they have the skill to implement it, then the things they come up with are that, you know, if you, for example, were working in social media at an ad agency, you come up with ideas for new Twitter campaigns, because that's your raw materials, that's what the craft you have. And so that ability of our brain to be creative, it's there, right? The studies show us it's there. And so I think this idea of like the creative lens, the creative vision, the creative muse, all this stuff is basically just a very standard human cognitive bias, which is that when something's unconscious, we're really bad at explaining it, right? And we just sort of chalk it up to, well, it must be divine. And no, there's science behind this stuff. In the...
2: Earlier in the show, you talked about how creators can be iterating and in some cases, imitating. Since writing the book, tell me something you took from your investigations and your writing that you actually implemented at Track Maven to help the creative process, the problem-solving ability of the organization?
4: Oh, the biggest thing is coaching. I mean, how I coach people has become very different. You know, now what I'm very curious about when I'm coaching someone on our team is, well, what do you think of yourself? What are the stories you've told yourself about your capabilities and abilities? Because to me, that's actually usually the biggest differentiator for people between success and failure, is do they think they can do it? Have they opened themselves up to those ideas? And it's amazing how much conditioning our culture does. There was this famous study that came out in the 90s that looked at creative potential and found that 90%, 90% of high of sorry, of kindergartners tested at creative genius levels of creative potential and 15% of high school seniors. Mm-hmm. So something happens, right? And my sort of theory of the world is, and there's a lot of sociologists who agree with this, is that's basically how we condition kids. We tell them you, know, you have to take the safe path, you, know, you have to become a professional, you have to get good grades, you have to pass the test. And guess what? In a future economy with AI and machine learning, um, passing the test is not the skill which is going to get you a job, right? That's what a machine's going to do. And so your advantage as a human being is going to be creativity. And those are the skills we have to nurture in this 21st century.
1: Cool, that's gold, really. To so Gene, absolutely. With five, with
2: five kids for you, my friend. <laughs> that's, <right. laughs> that's what you want to be thinking about. Um, Alan, just to wrap this up, because I'm very conscious of your time with all you have going on in your world. From, from a writer's perspective, you did these interviews with some fascinating people. You've written a super successful book. The book is gold. You've done a lot of interviews about the book on this process of creativity. In the the last couple of hundred days, in the last year, what have you changed about your own personal world? So you've talked about Track Maven, the coaching, which I think is gold. What have you personally changed, altered, included, eliminated that was a learning from your writings you've applied to yourself?
4: The biggest thing is realising and becoming very direct about my sort of silent time and my time to think of new ideas. I think in the past I had that because I was a runner and I work out a lot and like that I would have ideas but I wasn't I wasn't like that wasn't a strategy that was just happening and realizing how important that is the process and learning to when I'm working on any sort of creative project, whether that's um, you know a strategy document for a customer or that's a chapter of a book, what I've realized is that, you really have to listen to how your body and your brain and your mind is working. And so often now, you know, I'll work on um, you know, let's say I was writing a chapter, I, you know, work on it for 90 minutes and just stop. And instead of trying to spend all of Sunday, you know, cramming it and working it and trying to make it right, I realize, yeah, at the first 90 minutes, I get 80% of the work done. And the rest of the day is like not that well used. So um if I'm that kind of morning person, well, I should use the rest of the day for more menial tasks that, you know, like scheduling and research and blah, blah, blah. And so becoming more aware of things like that and actually taking action on them has been hugely impactful to my overall productivity and especially my life satisfaction because there's less of these moments of burnout where it's like, oh, I'm just trying to get this done and I can't get it done. It's like, well, no, just wake up an extra 30 minutes early tomorrow and I can crank it down in 20 minutes with a fresh head right? And so that's been very impactful.
2: I think there are people who listen who hear about the silence part, but silence can be boring and sometimes stuff <laughs> doesn't come. And I'm currently reading a book, actually, is really interesting. It's called Bored and Brilliant. And it's about a journalist <laughs> who discovered the value of boredom and how it brought brilliance. It's a really interesting read. Um, in, in that time though, do we, do we tend to get guilty Going actually because I'm in sitting in silence and nothing's happening and I'm having all these weird thoughts, I feel a bit guilty I should go and do something. Was that something you discovered or you found yourself? hundred percent
4: and that I think is all social pressure right that's all just you know things we tell ourselves and you know ways in which we sort of get ourselves worked up um, but that's not real right that's not actually logical that's just you know we sort of live in this society which is that especially in America. Where it's all about, you know, work hard, productivity, um, blah blah blah. But you know, hours in the day is not actually a direct correlate to productivity. In fact, at a certain point, they start becoming inverted. And so, I think we—that's a cultural norm that is very unhealthy and that has really, really, really sort of um, ingrained itself in American culture. And I think changing that's going to be a very important thing too.
2: Just to finish this up, we like our music on this show, Alan, and (laughs) (laughs) we don't often go down the jazz track, but today we're going to go down a bit of Miles Davis and John Coltrane. I'd like you to talk to me about creativity and how we can draw inspiration from the great jazz musicians. This is something I've heard you speak of, but tell me what we can learn from the great jazz musicians in keeping with this topic of creativity?
4: Oh, I mean, jazz is such a great example of so much of this, right? Look at you know, the best jazz musicians worked with um, other jazz musicians. The idea of, you know, in order to create jazz, you first have to learn the standards. So you learned what to break and how to modify it, right? So the idea of familiarity and novelty, the idea of, you know, working in a creative community, you know, that idea of, you know, working on a craft and having craft being important of it, part and part of it. So jazz is such a wonderful, wonderful, rich example of it because you can really see this. And when you talk to jazz musicians, they'll tell you that you know their job isn't to create something so radically new that it freaks people out, but it's also not just to play the standards. It's not just to play a perfect jazz standard. That's boring. It's about how do you add your own twist to it, your own, your own sort of vibe to it. And so I think it's a great example of this.
2: <laughs> it's funny you could almost have a listener who runs an organisation or a team look at your team and say, are you a school band or are you a jazz band?
4: (laughs) I love that. That is the quote. That's great.
2: (laughs) Ella, this has been great. I know it took us quite a while to hook up because you had a lot going on with the book and then you went through everything with Track Maven, but we managed to find a time. You've been very generous with your thoughts, your philosophies, your wisdom, it's been a real treat, mate. I think this is such a great topic. I think your approach to it, the, the way you take what's out there in terms of the research, but you, you present it in such a way that we can walk away from the show and do something with it. It's really great. Where, where should people go to continue this conversation with you, the book, the
4: business? Well, first of all, you guys are way too nice. Um, second of all, um, Alan, A-L-L-E-N, .xyz that is the um, home site and the book website is thecreativecurve.com. the curve.com just t h e creativecurve.com and it's available in australia so definitely pick
2: it up well this has been awesome mate i do know how much you've got going on and uh we appreciate it so
1: thank you so much thanks for having me guys the
0: mojo radio show
1: Speaking of creativity, I reckon you take the cake this week because I reckon creatively that's got to be the longest intro to an interview we've ever done on this show. (laughs) It was long, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Nice one, though. Well
2: done. I must say, it was going through my mind as I kept on talking, thinking, mate, it's time to shut the hell up and get (laughs) on
1: with the guest. Yeah, no, you were thinking Robbo's saying shut up. Robbo's saying shut up.
2: (laughs) I just know you'll edit it down. The Mojo Radio Show. Before we had the big wrap to the show, a big shout-out to our mate Pete Harrison from Fish River Roasters. I had a beer at the pub with Pete just recently, and I think he won... I think he won five or six Golden Bean awards. No, oh, I thought you were going to say he won the Meat Raffle. <laughs> no, not so lucky. But that's pretty big time. That's that's the number one coffee industry awards nationally, and there was something like two or three thousand entries, and they took home I think five or six different Golden Beans. And get this, one of the Golden Beans he won was the best blessed spiritual espresso blend from Northern New South Wales, which was the Buddha Brew. <laughs> <laughs> now, the category was... Don't, don't get me wrong. The category was tight. There weren't a lot of entrants in the best blessed spiritual espresso That's blend awesome. from Northern New South Wales. So it was a very tight category, but, uh, but the Buddha Brew came home
1: with a golden bean, which I think is just brilliant. So you're telling me that those people who picked up Buddha Brew last October... Actually, picked up gold. <laughs> they, picked up, they picked up gold. Gold on so the air, go. <laughs> gold in the cup. There you go. Look at that.
2: But seriously, well done, Pete and Joe and yeah, all congratulations, the Congratulations, guys. Well done. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish
0: I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show.
2: This show is themed from the head of the show. We started with Sting and Eric Clapton. We talked to Alan. He's interviewed a lot of, like, I think he mentioned the songwriters from The Greatest Showman, which is a fabulous soundtrack. So there has been a bit of a theme. And over the years we have had, we mentioned Ivor Davies from Ice House. When you think of great songwriters who saw something, heard something or felt something, that became a great song that we love. We've interviewed a lot of songwriters who've done that mm. in the six seasons we've had on the show. Mm. When you think about that, what song comes to mind where that story
1: was unravelled on the show. There's so many. Wendy Matthews, Rick Price. Um, Do you know where I'd probably go? I'd probably go uh, Buzz Bidstrip. Do you remember him? Um, Played with the Angels and Ganga Jang, blah, blah, blah. He talked about uh, writing Sounds of Then, Ganga Jang's biggest hit. So watch this. with Lola and I have been practising. Hey, Lola. I'm listening. Find Buzz Bidstrip interview. Sounds of Then, Grab.
3: Playing that now. That
1: was a poem that that Cal wrote uh, probably
5: around the time we started the band. He'd written three three sets of lyrics, right, three songs, and one of them was Sounds of Then, and the other one was Bigger They Are, and the other one was Ambulance Men. And they were kind of stories about his time in a place called Bundaberg, Queensland. And what it was really about was that he was an English migrant. He came out here when he was in his early teens, and his dad and mum put him and his brother and sister in a car, and they started driving north from Brisbane. And they said to Mark and the family, they said, when you find somewhere you like, we'll we'll live there. And they'd, they'd come from East Africa via England because their dad was in the army. So they wanted somewhere warm, so they started driving north. And as they got into Bundaberg... Mark and his brother saw all these kids. I don't don't know if you've ever driven into Bundaberg, but there's sports yep. grounds, there, yep. or sports grounds all the way. And they saw all these kids playing soccer, and um and they went and uh, went, wow, this is uh, this is incredible, you know, because <laughs> they loved soccer, um and they said well, we want to live here, so they they got a place, and their their house was a very modest little, you know, triple front brick. brick veneer, cream brick veneer home, but it was right on the outskirts of Bundaberg in a suburb called Kalki. And when you stood on their patio and looked out over the cane fields where the lightning would crack and there was, you know, lines of cattle walking through the cane fields and around there, Mark was basically with that poem was describing... Well, the house is awkward. It faces west, long diagonals and sloping too. And in the distance, in the heat haze, in convoys of silence, the cattle graze. The
3: block is awkward. It faces west, long diagonals and sloping too. And in the distance, through the heat haze, in convoys of
5: silence, the cattle graze. Right? You know, in a room of silent hardy flex a certain texture, that certain smell. So he's remembering the house that he lived in. He's remembering... And the thing was that they used to sit out on the patio and laugh and think they were in Australia. They go, my God, I don't believe this. Look at that lightning cracking over the cane fields and on the humidity that they breathe. And they just go, well, we're in Australia. (laughs)
2: <laughs> isn't it the it's just, I can hear it, Robbo. I know I can, it's crazy, I can, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah. the sound. laughs>
5: you know that's that's the that's the story of Sounds <laughs> of Then. That's how that that bit of lyrics came about. And then Mark has played us. He had a melody for it, but the band the band got hold of it, and we did our our thing to it. And it, you know, the, the combination of everyone has made a a very a very um, you know unique. Piece of music. Lola, play sounds of then We're out I
3: think I hear the sounds of them and people talking who scenes recall by my new movement and songs they fall from the back texture, that certain smell You lie in sweat on familiar sheets In the and around your own finance bed In a room, with silent hearty hardy a certain texture, that certain smell Brings home the heavy day Brings home the nighttime swell Out on the patio This is Australia The block is awkward It faces wet, Long diagonals and slope in two And in the distance Through the heat haze In convoys of silence, The cattle graze A certain texture That certain beat Brings forth the nighttime heat Out on the patio we sit And the humidity we breathe We watch the lightning crackle
0: See you next time.